Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Miles Neal, who is an author, teacher, Buddhist psychotherapist, and leader of pilgrimages around the Buddhist world. Okay, Miles, it's good to see you. I've been reviewing your your website and your work, and I wish that I would have known you five years ago uh, or even longer because it seems like you have blended very well your contemplative psychotherapy practice with pilgrimage, which is super interesting, and I want to get into that a little bit more later, but I'd love to hear how you discovered pilgrimage to begin with, and if you have one particular experience that sort of uh, you can draw us back to uh, with your own experiences with pilgrimage, I'd love to hear that. Sure. And just let me say before I do, when I got the message about what you do, Heather, I was, um, you know, I don't have much time, but I made time for this because this is, I mean, what you do and what your interest is so niche and so unique, but it really speaks to my heart. So I, I was, I was just um, amazed actually that you created uh, such a groove for yourself uh, with the constellation of your interests and then to put out a podcast that's exclusively really focused on pilgrimage I think is outstanding and um, so I bow to all your endeavors and your interests it's just a really interesting I'd love to know the backstory and how you got into it but this <laughs> I, hope, I hope we'll have more time off off the record for, for, for discussion to get to know each other but thank you so much for what you do thank you for inviting me onto your show and also uh, you know, pilgrimage is life. You know, pilgrimage isn't just a trip or a travel to a destination. Pilgrimage is a spiritual quest. I think that speaks in the most broadest sense to everybody. Uh, everybody, it's relevant to everybody in that way. I think, uh, you know, for for me, pilgrimage started at age 20. I was at uh Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, liberal arts college, and I wasn't a very good student. <laughs> and if there's anyone out there listening that doesn't fit into the mold or fit into the box, there's still hope for you as long as you keep in keep faith that you'll find your way and that that you keep exploring. Uh, because I I you know I, I struggled with dyslexia un, undiagnosed dyslexia never never really truly enjoyed academia and i found an opportunity at wheaton college where they let let you um, cobble together an independent study and go outside of the mainstream curricula and, and sort of do independent research and and for that i married the twin interests at my time at the time for me were buddhism and psychotherapy psychology and buddhism I had met a mentor who was a zany Zen psychoanalytic therapist, and he had lived in Korea and done his PhD in Harvard and was teaching very, very interesting courses. And I would just spend time with him in Duxbury, Massachusetts, in his garden, just dreaming together. That was the introduction to a very uh, 
a beautiful liminal space of creativity and imagination with him outside of the mainstream academic approach. And we cobbled together a kind of independent study that would take me four years, uh, three years at that time journey. And, and we said we would do field research for it. And so part of the field research was applying for a, um, a semester abroad in India under the Antioch uh, program for Buddhist studies. Now, I don't know if that's the same Antioch that you're involved with, Heather. I'm not sure if that's the same Antioch or not. It was at the time out of Coal Springs, Ohio. So I don't know if there's different factions of Antioch. But nevertheless, they, they ran a very prestigious opportunity since the maybe the 80s uh, where college students from all over the world were allowed to come to a Buddhist monastery in Budgaya, India, which is the Mecca of Buddhism, a very, very profound, basically village that has been untouched for some 500 years or so. I mean, you, it's like going back on a time machine into time and immersing oneself in a Buddhist monastic context. And I said I would do that for four or five months, and then I would come home, and I, then I would go to Harvard Medical School and, and study with the great Dr. Herbert Benson, who was sort of the pioneer in the scientific investigation of meditation at the time, probably the grandfather of really good, you know, gold standard research on meditation. And so combining those two, two interests would then lead to a thesis, and I'd would circumvent all the annoying studies <laughs> that I wasn't going to be I wasn't going to be adept at and find a way to really let my heart sing and let my creative uh, out, find a creative outlet for for pursuit of education. So, you know, I was 20 years old and here I am like packing at the time, you know, there's this is I don't know. It's hard to believe there was a time pre-internet anymore. Uh, but it was India in 1994 and um no cell phones, no internet. And I remember a significant point in the pilgrimage before I left with my parents, having convinced them that I wasn't gonna to go to like Oxford for architecture or Florence for art <laughs> or London for economics. I was gonna to go to Budgaya for to study meditation. <laughs> and we had an atlas at the time because there was no, one of those big dusty atlases and we put through it on the dining room table and we tried to fucking find uh, Budgaya on the on the atlas and we couldn't couldn't find it <laughs> we could find Bihar state and we could find Gaya the main the main city but we couldn't find Budgaya which says it all from a mythological perspective because I was heading to a destination that was truly unknown I mean that's what it means to the psyche now looking back 20 years old, a misfit in society, trying to carve out a new way, trying to find a way to follow the heroic journey, even though at that time that, that motif wasn't uh, as articulate and clear to me as it is now. Couldn't find it on the map, traveling alone, long distances away from comfort zones, Finally made it to India, and then from India it was some 18 hours on a train. So the whole thing, trains, buses, walking by foot, cycle, all the way to Budgaya. And there we were. I mean, I don't know, there's a hundred stories about my experience in Budgaya, but probably the most pronounced and profound I've shared on previous podcasts, but it, it, it is really finding the teacher, finding the mentor. 
I met a very um, simple, kind-hearted, sincere uh, meditation teacher named Godwin, who was from the lay, lay vipassana uh, sort of uh, layman. He wasn't a monk, and he was from Sri Lanka. And he only had two teachings. One of them were, was mindfulness, and one was loving-kindness. And I spent about a month studying with him. At the time, I had um, I had a lot of trauma in my history, so I was part of the impetus of going on these excursions. Was really uh, still unbeknownst to me was healing. This was a need for healing. Part of my trauma was not being able to sleep. The symptoms of unresolved trauma was hypervigilance and being unable to sleep. And during the meditation training, we had periods where we could approach the meditation teacher. And one night after not being able to sleep, I knocked on his door and I said, I have a few questions for you. And he said, come on in. And I told him about my sleep issues. And he said, why don't you spend the night here in this room? There, there were three beds. It was a very kind invitation. And he said, we'll sleep. I'll, I'll show you how to sleep properly. And in the morning, we'll get up early before everybody else gets up and we'll go to the tree of enlightenment where the Buddha sat. That's called the Bodhi tree. So he showed me how the Buddha died. He died in a particular posture, laying on his side. He said, this is the best way to sleep physiologically. And I did sleep that night, uh, by the way. And I don't think it had anything to do with the posture. I think it had to do with the fact that Godwin's presence was a symbol of un the unconditional love I think my heart really yearned for. Uh, I was feeling safe for the first time. And... Uh, and so the next morning before sun, we arose together. I was refreshed. And as people do in that part of the world, men particularly, they hold hands. And, uh, and we, we, we held hands together. We walked down a dusty road from the Burmese Vihar, the temple, the Burmese temple, down a very narrow, dusty road towards the Tree of Enlightenment, where we sat under the tree in silence. And we meditated together. And the whole thing to me was intimacy. It was intimacy. It was unobstructed, uncontrived, natural, safe, profound safety. I mean, it was beautiful. And uh, that changed my life because the what I found there in Budgai and what I found on pilgrimage made such a deep impact. It, I know a lot of people use this, it's become a cliche, but, but it's so true in a way, I mean, to have found home. Uh, the pilgrimage is about finding home. And, and, and there I found home in, in a couple of different ways, externally, but Gaia was a little oasis, unchanged oasis, the epicenter of ground zero of enlightenment, uh, but also a teacher, somebody whom I could trust and become vulnerable with. And then home in myself where I felt supported and safe and loved. I think there are three dimensions among others about finding home. So I think that's maybe a good place to let you come back in. Well, your experience of finding home is most definitely not uh, unique. You probably saw me nodding my head because I hear this so much from from pilgrims, and it's such a strange paradox where the 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 pilgrim is out of the home and yet feels more at home while on the pilgrimage or at a pilgrimage site than 
than uh, than at home, uh, the the structure that they left or the hometown or the the locale uh, that that they departed from. And I'd like to hear more about about your thoughts about what what is it about pilgrimage that lends itself? I mean, you're going to a particular place that has significance for you. And how is it that other people going on a pilgrimage find home in a way that feels similar, even though it's a different location? Well, I mean, for that, you have to, you know, there are there are many different pilgrimages. I mean, one thing that I, I like to, at least in the Buddhist tradition, there are three types of pilgrimages. There's one called the outer, there's one called the inner, and there's one called the secret. Now, the outer one is about a destination to a locale. And that, that can be a sacred epicenter like Mecca. It can be like the Camino is an outer pilgrimage. It, is a, it, has, a, it has a location. Um, and, you know, the kind of people, you have devote pilgrims of Christianity that go on the Christian pilgrimage. You have devote uh, pious Muslims who go on the Islamic one of the one of the pillars or the, of the, of their of their faith, they go to Mecca. But then you also have the curious, and you know, maybe maybe um, you know Mecca is a bit of exclusive. You know, if you're not Muslim, you can't enter. Uh, but anyone can go on the Camino. Um, so you know, depending on you know, you may go to a sacred mountain in China. You may go to a sacred place in the Amazon. You may. Newcomers can go, most newcomers can go to most sacred spaces and they will fulfill the outer pilgrimage because they will have to leave the familiarity of, of their con the confines of their comfort zones and, and embark into a liminality and they'll arrive somewhere fresh and new. And, and on the way, they'll have to confront a lot of different difficulties and challenges. That's part and parcel of the pilgrimage and I think ubiquitous of the external or the, you know, the outer pilgrimage. But then there's also the inner pilgrimage, which is the psychological, um, the psychological mirror of the outer one. And I'm, you know, in your research, I'm sure you've hit all the classic researchers who discuss this, that they, they, they kind of, they, they happen in parallel. I mean, as somebody embarks step by step on an external journey, there's also something metaphysical happening, psychological happening inside of them. And, and I, for me, Joseph Campbell really synthesized this best, although there's many different interpretations and different researchers who, who spend a, you know, are eloquent in describing this process. You know, Joseph Campbell condensed it into three, sort of a three phase, uh, three three acts of a, of a, of theater, if you want, which is the departure, the initiation, and the return. So there's something about leaving home physically, but also leaving the ego and leaving the the reinforcement contingencies that are mirrored towards us about who we are. It's almost like we're sending out a signal, and the world is sending back a, a mirror reflection. And in there, in in that reinforcement contingency, there does become a kind of safe stasis. It both provides some sense of security, but it also is a kind of trap. And that's why you can wake up 10 years later or 20 years later and feel like nothing, nothing about you is actually developing or growing. Um, but you haven't risked anything. <laughs> At least you've been safe. So, 
you know, and then of course we could always tie this to COVID because COVID has ripped the rug out from all of us and underneath us and, and it's, it's tampered uh, with the system, the system of reinforcement contingencies that are attempting to keep structure beneath our feet. Uh, some, that has been severely disrupted and that's why there's so much anxiety and panic. But because the, the ego has been, you know, the, the reinforcement contingencies that keep the ego intact have been in a way disrupted. And through that, there's a, especially for people who have no inner resources, that's incredibly terrifying. Those of us that are in the spiritual world and have some psychological resources recognize this as an opportunity, that the crisis is an opportunity for growth. And that is because once you leave the once you leave the place of familiarity, you you know you leave the Shire. But Bill Bilbo Baggins leaves the Shire. Luke Skywalker leaves, you know, home. You you're confronted with adversaries and allies, and you discover something new. And that's that's that reignites the brain. I mean, that creates new neural networks and new synapses and you discover you can handle things and see yourself in new ways and you find new capacities and, and, and that's where you feel most alive. And, and that is, I think, whether you're Christian and you go on the Camino or whether you're an atheist and you go on the Camino, if it's new and it's challenging, and it help and it and it it serves to undermine the processes that maintain your stasis, and actually are disruptive. Then something something new can be born when the field is burnt down. And so that's the profound aspect of the inner journey. And of course, then the outer inner are also mirrored in the secret journey, which is mostly a mystical experience that is talked about in alchemical traditions, esoteric spiritual traditions of mysticism, where they also talk about a descent of energy into the sacred crucible at the base of the spine. This is sometimes talked about as chakra work or shakti, the, the, the arousal of shakti. It, it, is, it is the metaphoric descent into the darkness and then the reconfiguration of energies and then the conscious arising of those energies into the central channel that is the seed of enlightenment. So I think that is also a pilgrimage. Uh, and in fact, you know, it's very possible my colleague and my teacher, Geshe Tenzin Zopa and I are going to lead a pilgrimage in October next year, where all three of we're going to try to cover all three of these, the external journey to uh, Kathmandu and then to Bodhgaya, but then also a setup for an internal journey because there's lots of meditations and trainings and ritual prayers and embodied activities along the way that are designed to be provocative of the mythological dimension of transformation. And then along with that, some of the very, very secret tantric teachings about transforming energy in the very subtle body. So there you would get both or all three outer, inner and secret pilgrimages. Uh, I want to go back to um, your the your experience that you first described or a series of experiences. I did not hear if you had approached this first pilgrimage to India 
as a young uh, a young person in 1994. Did you approach it as a pilgrimage or did you approach it from the onset as some type of field experience and then later realize it had been a pilgrimage? Yeah, it was definitely the latter. I mean, the, the language of pilgrimage was not part of my lexicon. Uh, you know, to be perfectly frank, it's not always true that the motivation at the outset of the pilgrimage is clear. <laughs> You know, for me, I was trying to I was trying to find myself and I was trying to escape the enclosure of academia. I, I was basically trying to circumvent the system and get away with it. <laughs> and, and that was the, you know, but also to be completely fair to myself, too, like I found in the basement of Wheaton College Religion Department in the stacks there a paper pamphlet that was torn up it looked probably two to three years old saying antioch buddhist studies abroad program and why the fuck did i pick that up and why did it resonate to me i look back now more than 20 years it has been and i've led 10 pilgrimages since then and this is so central to my identity and my spiritual i you know inclination why is it that a 20-year-old kid picks up that pamphlet where it says you'll be meditating at 5 o'clock in the morning with the monks in India eating one meal a day or something? Why is it that that's attractive? Uh, and I can only, I mean, I, for me, it, it's reaffirming of this idea that we're not one life. We don't have just one life. We have infinite lives and there were already prior seeds that have been laid that create the kind of reverberation and we always pick up where we left off. So to answer your question, no, pilgrimage wasn't clear consciously. But, but Bodh Gaya was calling me because I had already been to Bodh Gaya and I believe that and I don't really care what scientists think. That, that there's there's no there's not going to be any convincing to me that there's not a continuity of consciousness on this planet and that I had already made very deep pledges and made a connection with that space so that when a 20 year old very lost and depressed kid finds a dirty pamphlet in the basement of a of a of a building goes I'm going to do that even though I can't find it on the map I'm going to go there uh, so pilgrimage as a concept didn't occur to me until after. But pilgrimage as a vibration or an inclination was was always there. It's similar for me, too. I didn't even know what pilgrimage was until I was uh, in my doctoral studies, actually. And then things just kind of in, in a very similar manner. I read about it in a book and thought, this is it. I, I, it. I had just never really understood what it was before, but but having the term somehow changed my life. And I'm wondering, I mean, it's so central to who you are. When did you discover the word pilgrimage? And then how did your life reorient around this concept? Sure. But Heather, please give me a second and answer. How do you how do you how do you make sense of that? You're already in your doctoral research and it's just so grabbing you. How do you make sense of it? 
I there I have I mean it it's similar to I don't there isn't a way to make sense of it uh because it literally I was reading a book about the a brief history of the Middle East I mean as if such a thing exists and it was on a, like three sentences out of a book about the importance of of pilgrimage to uh all cultures in the Middle East and I thought why is this 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 concept or practice or or religious pillar um, in the context of Islam, why is this so important for people and why has it been for millennia? And that really launched, I mean, it. that is the moment that launched my, my interest, but clearly there was something, why did I choose that book? You know, of all of the books that I could have read, why and that why one? did it light you up? I mean, you just exactly. went for it. You're talking about three sentences in a random book that end up launching you like a rocket launcher into your dissertation and into a book. Yes. A, a, a book. You have a book coming yeah. out or is it already yes. published? It will be published next year. Yeah. So, I mean, come on. Come on. Yeah, I there I cannot explain it. There is not. <laughs> there is. It's a series. I mean, it almost feels like that it picks up I, that pilgrimage chose me you probably feel the same that it that something i mean certainly the the spiritual journey that you were on up to that point kind of reached out and chose you and you're explaining it maybe through uh, a past experience or series of experiences in the world i don't know i don't have a a scientific explanation there isn't a scientific explanation of all of the books that i could have chosen it seemed like my life suddenly made sense in reading two, it might not have even been three sentences, literally was so, uh, so it was important to the book, but not, certainly not a theme of the book, but it just something, boom, yeah. exploded for me. Well, you know, all I can say is, yeah, science can't encapsulate the numinous and thank God you listened. And if there's anybody listening right now, this is a classic motif in Joseph Campbell's uh, hero's path, which is that there's a, an opportunity to answer the call to adventure. I mean, when something lights you up and it's mysterious and you can't make sense of it, you have two choices is to disregard your intuition or to follow it. And thank God you did, because I think probably it has enlivened you ever since. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it is, and it, it never gets old. I never get tired of talking to pilgrims. I never get tired of learning about new pilgrimage sites. I never get, get tired of learning about how something mundane for one person might be a pilgrimage for someone else. It, it's completely fascinating. And the term itself has, it's important. The term itself for, for me, somehow has categorized certain types of journeys or travel in one way versus another way. And I've talked to many pilgrims who say the same thing. I mean, one, one person I interviewed for my PhD work told me it was the only time that he could actually shut his phone off, uh, detach from work is telling his coworkers and his his um, company, I'm going on a pilgrimage. The only time in his life when he felt um, okay, not guilty, uh, from f f to to detach from work. Mm -hmm. That's probably a commentary on American work culture, uh, but it's still significant uh, that the term itself 
creates a buffer around what we're doing and puts some level of intention that even people who may not be part of the experience are respecting the time and space and the experience that that may that someone else is is going on yeah i agree the word i mean when i when i have students when i take them on trips and and they have to carve out two to three weeks you know they they get a little concerned that they're they're going to get some flack at work and i always say well make sure that they know this is a pilgrimage make sure that this is not a leisure travel you're not going on vacation here um you be specific that this is a spiritual or religious uh religious travel religious journey i mean if 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 you're muslim and you say you're going on the hajj no one's going to blink an eye you know, but if you say, well, I'm going to I'm going to India uh, with my yoga teacher or my Buddhist teacher, then, you know, people people may not think that's appropriate. But then you say, no, I'm doing this as part of my religion. Then suddenly everybody backs off, which they need to do, because this is one of the most important things that a human being can possibly endeavor to do in their life. And I just can't I mean, I'm sorry to pause on your your line of inquiry, but just it's. I can't also just see it as a coincidence that you and the idea or the archetype of pilgrimage come together, particularly around this time in history, because the archetype of pilgrimage is very, very congruent as a metaphor for what we're living through. The world is forever changing. The landscape is being cleared, the ground is being cleared. We will never go back to normal. We will never go back to what we once had. The slate has been cleared. And the archetype of a pilgrimage, the message that you're coalescing, Heather, is the message that everybody needs to hear because no one can escape the cataclysm that we have been fallen. And people need to hear the message that there's a way through this. People need to know that they can die and be reborn. People need to know about transitioning through liminality. People need to know about the prospects and possibilities of a spiritual archetype or a spiritual quest. This is the great awakening. And so you're the bearer of this word, pilgrimage, so that the not not just the pious people that are already inclined to go on pilgrimage, but the masses that are coming forth and hungry and and yearning for some archetype to hold on to as they go through this. What an amazing thing that you're putting together. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's uh, as you can probably relate any time that one veers off of a path that is well trodden, it can be quite lonely. Uh, and so I appreciate you validating the work that I'm doing. Yeah, that's, I, that's why I just like I said at the top, I'm, I didn't really have time to do this, but I felt really compelled by you and compelled by what you're doing. Uh, really, it really spoke to me. And I, I and you know what? I don't even know if there's another podcaster amongst the millions that are out there that are doing what you're doing. But like I said, the word itself is very potent and I see it in an archetypal way. And you're, you're like a gate, you're opening a gate, you're opening a portal of possibility for people. So uh, it's, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. 
Um, and can you can you recall when you first heard the word, read the word, somehow it it came into your your consciousness? Yeah, I mean, when I when I was twenty and the first pilgrimage that I went on, even though I didn't know of the obvious word, once you get to Bodhgaya, it becomes clear what Bodhgaya represents and, it, and you start to hear the metaphors and the stories and the myths and the legends and the tales and, and the history, the historical evidence is that along the Gangetic Plains of Northern India, there are a series of very potent power spots associated with the life story and biography and miracles of the Buddha. And part of, you know, Bodhgaya proper is the epicenter because it's under the tree, the Bodhi tree that the Buddha gained enlightenment and he becomes the first human being, not a prophet, not a god, a human being that so transforms himself that he becomes the first one to become enlightened. Uh, that is a very, that's the most profound place, but there, the, the northern the northern areas filled with wonderful, potent power places. And so it, once you're there, you discover that pilgrims are, are on, a on a tour. And, and very soon you learn that Bodhgaya is just one of many. There are considered four great sites commemorating the place where the Buddha was born. That one is actually in Nepal, where the Buddha gained enlightenment where the Buddha, oh, sorry, where he gave, gave his, yeah, where he gained enlightenment, where he gave his first teaching and where he passed into what's called Bari Nirvana. These are the great four sites. Then there are an, an additional four sites to make eight where he, he had particular kinds of miracles in the same way that Christ, the Christ biography chron, chron, chronologies. I think once you're there, you recognize the concentric circles. You can, there, there are a growing number of these sites, uh, and then they start to spread into other countries, in fact. And so, you know, I don't just leave pilgrimages to northern India. I've been to other Buddhist countries in Asia, and they all have their own collection of pilgrimage sites. For example, in 2019, I led a group of students to Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka is littered uh, with with holy relics of the Buddha. In fact, there's a beautiful mythological story in Sri Lanka where the original Bodhi tree under which the Buddha uh, gained enlightenment uh, several hundred years after his, his passing, because of the Islamic invasions, Buddhism was taking kind of deteriorating. And yet in Sri Lanka, they had already made a transmission of Buddhist Dharma to Sri Lanka and it became like a stronghold. In fact, Tibet and, and Sri Lanka both have these geographical isolated kind of, you know, motifs. One's an island and one's in the Himalayas, but they become this place where the Buddha is kept sacred and kept safe. And in Sri Lanka, they they were studied, they were made great monastic universities, which are considered the Oxford and Harvard of early Buddhism. And they, they d discovered that the Bodhi tree was, was dying. This is a great metaphoric, great metaphoric imagery. They discovered that the Bodhi tree under which the, which is a symbol. I mean, the tree is such a profound symbol. It's, it's, it's an archetype that's found. Jesus was crucified on a tree. Buddha woke up underneath a tree. You name it, it's everywhere. Uh, they discovered that the Bodhi tree, the original Bodhi tree was deteriorating. And 
they 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 requested a sapling be cut from it and it was transported to Sri Lanka where it was replanted and not only replanted in one place but once that branch was replanted then branches were taken from that one original sapling and planted all over the island and what in a profound replicative imagery of some organic thing like a tree the symbol of a seed and fruit and tree that connects heaven and earth and is replanted and think about ecologically how we're cutting them down right now we're cutting down the highway system between earth and heaven we are cutting our own you know veins that transport nutrients and life-giving shakti energy and at that point in time, they planted them all over Sri Lanka and they erected monasteries and universities around these sacred trees. And so we took an unbelievable pilgrimage to what's called the Atmastana, which are the eight great sites in Sri Lanka. And they're all Buddhist sites and they all have his relics there and they all had Bodhi trees there. And it was a, just an amazing pilgrimage. Uh, but as a long way of answering your question, like I discovered the term while I was in Budgaya, and then I started making, using the epicenter of Budgaya as a launching pad, I started making uh, jumps to these other pilgrimage sites in northern India. And then from there, I started going to Nepal and into Thailand and into Sri Lanka. And you can just keep that expanding. Is being a pilgrim uh, part of your identity? I mean, do, do, you, do you say to others, I am a pilgrim? Uh, I think, yes. I mean, when we're on pilgrimage, you know, we, I'll, I'll introduce like, you know, for example, we may meet, you know, it's, I love the metaphor. If you haven't told, you haven't got the sense already, I love the, the mythological dimension of things. But what, when we travel, we usually dress in white. Okay. There's symbolic, you know, if, if not during the main travel portion, during the, uh, during the ceremonies that we, that we undergo while on pilgrimage, but we inevitably meet uh, spiritual uh, elders of the of the tradition, the local spiritual elders. They may not know me personally. They may not know the group, um, but I'll I'll introduce them and I'll say we're on pilgrimage. And 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 the words are powerful. You're absolutely right. If you say we're on pilgrimage and we're going to visit the sacred sites of the Buddha, it's like you cut through hours of conversation. And it goes straight to the heart. Yes. I mean, it's, there's something just about the term. Uh, I don't know if it's this, if it's the, the same in, in other languages, I'm learning a, a little bit more about this. Uh, that's probably another show, but an entire uh, podcast episode just about the word, although it's, I mean, I think it, it, it would definitely be interesting. Um, I'm curious how you, how you, I mean, it's clear from hearing you that you have a passion for leading and guiding others. And, but that's a big step. It's a big step from taking your own pilgrimages and then bringing other people on pilgrimage uh, or pilgrimages. How did that happen for you? Oh, well, I mean, so yeah, I mean, this is where it's really important to have the three types of pilgrimage defined because yes, I when I was 20, I took my first outer pilgrimage. And then, you know, uh, after doing that, it so impressed me and so made an impression on my consciousness that I finished up my studies, I did an honors thesis 
combining Buddhism and psychotherapy. And as soon as I graduated, the first thing that I did was went straight back onto pilgrimage. The first thing that I could do after graduating was to head back to see my teacher. And so first time I went on pilgrimage, I went just to Bodh Gaya. Two years later, when I graduated, I went to Sri Lanka to visit my Sri Lankan teacher and do a long meditation course with him. And then I also went to Nepal and did pilgrimage to Nepal. And then went to Thailand and did pilgrimage to Thailand. And then I went to Sri Lanka and did pilgrimage there. And then I finally ended up back in Bodh Gaya. So like I, I, it was like unrestrained. The graduation is done. The diploma is conferred. Now I went to an explosion. I just went into as much as I could possibly gather. And then it was on that pilgrimage that I discovered I had, I had a, the rude awakening, as young people often do, that um, you can do a spiritual pilgrimage and you can, in, you know, you can ex expand your consciousness and expand your horizons, um, but then you have to make a living. And I had a choice, like, am I going to be a monk and live in Asia and soak this in? Or, you know, at the time I had a girlfriend and I had an inclination that I wasn't going to be a good monk. <laughs> I mean, I just wasn't going to make it as a monk. Uh, that was clear to me. And so I had to go back to school. And I went back to do a master's degree and to continue my research on the intersection of Buddhism and psychotherapy and, and you know, a whole set of series of constellation of events basically ushered in a period of very intensive training for me. Now, that's when I became a therapist. That's when I got clinical training alongside deeper meditative training. My teachers switched from the Asian teachers to two particular mentors that were both Buddhist scholars. Robert Thurman at Columbia and Joseph Luizzo at Columbia. The latter, Joseph Luizzo, was a, a pioneer in integrating Buddhism with psychotherapy. So I got, I started another pilgrimage. This is the one that most people don't really understand. And I think it's not very well appreciated nowadays. But I started a 20-year period of apprenticeship under my teachers. 20 years is a long time. 20 years is a long, 20 years of service of being a pupil to two great masters was a pilgrimage. It didn't, I didn't leave much of the Northeast of the United States, um, but I developed according to the second type of pilgrimage, the inner pilgrimage, it was definitely, there was a departure, there was an initiation and there was a return. And on the cusp of the return 20 years later, I mean, I had made also outer pilgrimage back and forth and back and forth, little mini trips for myself, but I was always just the pilgrim going on a trip. But after a 20 year apprenticeship, after being the student and slowly being empowered by my own teachers to start teaching, I was given the opportunity by Joseph Luizzo to teach a four-year course on Buddhism and psychology and trauma and neuroscience. And it literally lasted four years. We designed it in terms of it being a academic college length training for the kind of pop culture. So like 
you don't have to go to academia, you don't have to matriculate at a university. You could take a college-length course for adults who wanted to embark into the spiritual lens of Buddhism and psychology merged, so it took four years to teach that. And I started with hundreds of people, as you might imagine, with a, with a pilgrimage of, of hundreds of people, and it, by the time you get to the culminating graduation ceremony, you're down to about 50, but each one of those 50 people that finished, I'll, I'll, I remember them all by name, and I remember all the years that we spent together and all the trials we faced and all the, the, the heroic achievements that we created together. And so I said, if you pass, I will take you on pilgrimage. And so that would have been 2016. We started that four-year program in 2012. By the time we hit 2016, it was like our graduation. I was about to graduate my students, but in a way, I was also going to graduate myself. It's like when the student puts in the time, they also graduate. And so in a way, it was my own initiation come full circle. I took 17 students to Bodhgaya, and it was my 20-year anniversary. So think about the timing. You know, I was in Bodhgaya in 1996, and when I took my group of students, my own group of students to Bodhgaya, it was 2016. So a 20-year odyssey. And I was filled with emotion because there isn't a single thing in my life other than the marriage of my wife, my beautiful wife, Emily, and my kids. There's nothing more meaningful than sharing the portal to awakening with my own students. There isn't a greater gift I could give a human being than access to their own possibility of enlightenment. And it's not, it's not true that you have to go on pilgrimage to access that possibility. But on the other hand, it's absolutely true that it is amplified and enhanced at these spaces. And I would argue both. I would argue both. The possibility of enlightenment is available wherever you are because enlightenment is about awakening your own mind. But it is enhanced and facilitated if you have a guide and you are in places that have been for centuries imbued with such a magnetizing charge that it is undeniable on your viscera to be in amongst them. So yeah, that was a very meaningful coming full circle in my life. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, what a blessing, but also I would like to do this the rest of my life. I'd like to make pilgrimage part of the rest of my life. So 2016 was like, a seed. And two years later, <clears throat> you know, I also have a new teacher now. You know, I met the great Geshe Tenzin Zopa, who's my age. He's about 46, 47. He's a Tibetan Lama, great English speaker. He was featured in the documentary Unmistaken Child, which I recommend anybody watch. It's a fascinating documentary about him. But I invited him to come and give my students the what are called the refuge and the bodhisattva vows. These are ceremonies at the site of the Buddha's enlightenment that, in a way, give the soul, if you want to use that language, it gives the soul 
a meaningful path forward or a north star to focus on as an alternative to the distractions of the mundane consumeristic life, the ones of fame, fortune, success, and pleasure, which, which are impermanent and never satisfy. The refuge is about directing your soul to the one reason that you're here, which is to be awakened and to serve others. And that is conferred on you or, or made pronounced by a ceremony. And that ceremony can only be given by a lineage holder. It can be given like somebody like me. Somebody, uh, it has to be given by someone who holds what are called the Vinaya vows. And Geshe Tenzin Zopa is an exceptional emblematic uh, embodiment of this principle and so sharing him with my students was like passing my students on to someone who could take them the rest of the journey away which is another great thing uh, but seeing seeing how they respond in these sort of ceremonies in, in was so impressed it's like just as impressed as I was when I was 20 years old for me seeing another person just as impressed and knowing what the next 20 years could be like for them, you, I cannot really find the words to describe how meaningful that is for me. And so, you know, he, he came and he did that in 2016. And the first crack that we could do another pilgrimage happened in 2018. I think I took about 33 or 34 people to Nepal. And there again, we... Uh, we asked Keshe Tenzin Zopa to give the vows. Uh, there in Nepal was at the Bodhanath Stupa, which is called the wish-fulfilling or wish-granting stupa temple. And he gave the Bodhisattva vows there, and that's another potent memory. I mean, he, at the, at the very end of the ceremony, he kept a, a, a very potent reframe the Bodhisattva vow is your commitment to attain enlightenment in order to be of service to others. So it's not just refuge, like I'm going to go for my North Star, the purpose of my life is to be awake, the purpose of my life is to liberate myself from the veils of delusion. The purpose of my life is to wake up so I can be, have a meaningful impact on the planet and other people. When he conferred that as your right and your commitment, I remember most of the 30 were in tears. I mean, these are well-to-do people. They have families and jobs and they live, you know, they've all been, they've all done their apprenticeship in the, the university halls. They've, they've, they're successes by every other measure, but there's something about our culture that deprives them of a greater matrix, a transpersonal meaning matrix in which to see themselves. And the conferring of the Bodhisattva vow for them was a breakthrough, the event horizon of myopia that allowed them to see themselves in a much broader context imbued with meaning for the remainder of their life. Now, it doesn't mean they abandon jobs and family and become nuns. It means that if they work in the financial sector, they are now a Trojan horse in the financial se sector trying to elicit positivity and awakening amongst their peers. If they work in the academic sector, if they work in the economic sector, if they work in the educational sector, they are now avatars of the bodhisattva commitment to help arouse people from the slumber. And that is tremendously powerful and tremendously meaningful. 
And it was, it's probably one of my top five memories of my life and probably will continue to be for the rest of my life. And so, yes, and, and then I remember myself asking, Geshe Tenzin Sopa said, here and now at the wish-granting uh, temple, make your prayer. And I said, for the rest of my life, may I lead at least one pilgrimage every year to bring people into the fold of this transpersonal experience so that they can be a multiplying amplifier for the consciousness of this planet to awaken before we utterly destroy it. The, the, I think this ties in a little bit um, with something I've, I've been curious about as you're talking. And that is, I heard very clearly about your own draw to the, your your experience as a as a young person was really full of sacrifice and pain. Um, I mean, you talked about just you, you not even knowing the location where you go where you were going and the the plane and buses and and uh, probably motorbikes and walking. And this element of sacrifice that I think is so, uh, it's so critical in a pilgrimage Thank you journey. for listening to Meaningful Journeys. And I'm wondering this how program you is balance that by with University New England and the Meaningful um, Life you Institute. That there, we would love there, to connect with you on social media, scrappy, right? on Instagram, where you have to on Twitter and to get where you're going. And or that's by part email, of, info at meaningfuljourneys.net or our website, uh, www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time uh, on our shared quest so for meaning as we connect so humanity one step at a time. You are guiding on pilgrimages is there this is the sacrifice part present inevitably it has to be right i mean you can't have the treasure without the trial that's the metaphoric level you can't taste you can't have heaven without hell you can't find it without sacrifice it's just not possible i mean an ego death is required. You have to leave home. You have to not know if you're going to survive. This is the great motif of the Odyssey. Now, I mean, in terms of being a pilgrimage leader, do I spend a lot of time preparing my students and pilgrims for the adventure? Yes. I, I, you know, I don't want people to spend probably, this may be for some people the biggest ticket item that they're going to spend in the year or in the five years or some in some cases 10 years. I don't want them to land in India and get Delhi belly or some nasty virus that prohibits them to even embark on the journey. And India and Nepal are notorious. I mean, the third world is notorious for creating challenges that we don't we don't take for granted, particularly for those people that don't get the opportunity to travel outside their bubbles. So we spend a lot of time preparing. I have orientations on both ends of the pilgrimage. You have to have, and it's like a psychedelic trip. You have to have, you have to prepare people for the disillusion. And you have to prepare them for re-entry. And you have to do that whether it's therapy or psychedelics or a physical trip or an emotional trip. You have to do some preparatory work to, to facilitate 
so that some of the unnecessary challenges are abated so that the ones so that they're actually freed up the mind is freed up to focus on the ones that are unavoidable <laughs> you know you can't go on a two-week or three-week trip where it's like maybe a year or 10 years of your life are condensed into such a time warp and an explosion and being with other people and then being with the masses and, and, and like every day. I mean, people, it's exhausting. My pilgrimages are exhausting. I, I, I take almost a year to curate and custom design every single one of them. And then there's always the unknown certain unknown factors that always creep in. And inevitably it's hard people do get sick people do despite all the information they get people people have a tremendous you know uphe upheaval of psychic content emerges uh, people have ab reactions people have memories that are unveiled people have some sort of crises that are all symptomatic of the ego death on these adventures and you want that and in fact, if I may be so blunt, that's what we're seeing with COVID right now. I mean, I'm of the mind that what we see in COVID right now, the, the infrastructure that has kept the ego intact has been disrupted. And the upheaval of anxiety and depression is an indication that there is a necessary ego death occurring and that my 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 point of view is that i don't want to medicate that away i don't want to put people back into i don't want to put humpty dumpty back together again i want to help see it through instead of go back their people are fragmenting right now but that's just they're on the cusp of a breakthrough not a breakdown but we're not getting that message. We need, we need to promote the message that it's safe to fall apart. It's actually what's required in a, in a good human development. You have to leave certain, you have to go through certain arrests in development and break through the other side. And these can be very tumultuous. I don't think there's a single person that remembers fondly some of their uh, early high school memories it's really hard period of time that you don't want to go back to but that's when you were like being formed you your adolescence was dying and your 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 early maturity was forming and that's what's on offer right now in covid maybe there are a few cases i'm speaking in broad generalities you know maybe it's important for a few people to be more stabilized than others maybe they're not actually ready uh, but I think most people are ready and they're just not getting the message that it's okay to un unravel it's okay to enter into the great mystery it's okay not to be so sure it's okay not to be you won't die you will part of you will die but essentially even though your soul won't die your soul needs this to break through another to another side and to reclaim something it has not really fully discovered in this lifetime. And that is what is required. And that's what happens on a pilgrimage. I mean, inevitably, there you hit a wall after day seven or day 12. The same is true in a 10-day meditation retreat where you're, you're, you, you, hit a, you hit a wall and you can either quit or you can go through it. And I think that that happens on every pilgrimage. There's a certain amount of preparation 
that is at the conceptual level, like this is what might happen to you. In the same way that you might educate someone who's about to take a mushroom trip, like this might happen to you. Unfortunately, uh, with, a, with a psychedelic experience, you can't back out. <laughs> with a pilgrimage though, you know, you can, you can get terrified, you can get overwhelmed to just, you know, it's funny in my day, it took 30 some hours trains and buses to get to a pilgrimage through a psychological lens and also uh, hearing from pilgrims who are completely destabilized and then come back to their to their pre-pilgrimage home or their social structure they don't fit it's a disaster and what has impressed me about the pilgrimages that you're leading is that is a that that you are paying sort of mindful attention to that post period uh, and no doubt it's because of your own experience you know that kind of internal process that happens for people when they're uh, like a square peg going back into a round hole um, and it can be very anxiety provoking for people and the structure no longer fits and there's incongruence um, so I, I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit about that part of the, the, the pilgrimage process um, in your pilgrimages. Yeah, I mean, my own personal experience when I was 20, they did a great job. Antioch University did a great job preparing us. They actually eased us in with some written materials. They had us read the summer before. They had us meet as a group in London, and then they had us meet in Delhi. And we, at each of these stops, we were like getting closer and closer to Budgaya and we were merging as a group and we were coalescing and we were processing, you know, cause they're, we're young, we're 20 year olds. So they did a great job, but they didn't do a great job on the follow-up. And when I got home after my first journey, undergoing perhaps without question, the most profound period of my life, I wound up on a college campus where people were fucking and smoking marijuana and doing all the things that they were doing, partying in the woods and getting drunk and all the kids, all the things that kids do. And here I am with a shaved head, having taken the Bodhisattva vow and committed my life to awakening for the benefit of others. <laughs> and, you know, I, I had... I had kept in touch with my sweetheart at the time. I had vowed celibacy and wasn't going to mess around. And I, you know, wanted to remain pure and faithful to her. And I was writing her letters every week about my experience. I mean, these are, remember, these are the days before internet. So it was handwritten letters. And I got home and she had betrayed me. And so I arrived off the plane into a debaucherous college experience without my love and no orientation, no community to hold me, no North Star to, to, you know, to orient me. And it was terrible. It was terrible. And now I look back on it and I think, you know, preparation is key. Preparation is really key. I actually think that the preparation for post-integration is more important than the preparation for entry. And certainly that's the case. I don't know about you. Are, are you a clinician, by the way, Heather? Do you see patients? Uh, not currently, but I used to. 
So, I mean, if you used to, I don't know if it was pre-psychedelic revolution, but are you getting any patients who want to know more about psychedelic use or have been on a psychedelic experience, have taken ayahuasca in Peru or this or that? For sure. Yes. And the, the numbers are increasing, right? Yes. I'm not, I'm not in practice and haven't been for, for a number of years. And I have a lot of friends who are in practice and this is something we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not much preparation for a young person on the, on the, at the, at the entry point and they'll may, maybe travel to Costa Rica or they may go to Peru or they may go to the Amazon. I don't know where they go. They go somewhere and they have this really profound experience and then they come home, get off the plane and there's no point of contact to orient them to what they have seen and the, discon the, the cognitive dissonance between what they've seen and how their home life remains. And that was jarring for me, very jarring. And it made a big impression on me. So I started thinking about ways to facilitate people coming home. And to be perfectly frank, I don't want it to sound like a cult, but I, 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 I think it's important for people to have a microculture to return to. Uh, because they need to have mirroring, accurate mirroring for their experience, which means they have to be around like-minded people who have also been around that experience. They have to be around elders. They have to be around community. They have to be around, and they have to keep up the practices that have been so meaningful for them. And so even though I was clocking the hours in my meditation, while I was a I mean, listen, the vibration of Bodh Gaya, you could be meditating 24-7 because you step out on the street and you have a cup of coffee and you're talking Dharma, you're talking truth, you're talking about spiritual things. You step off the cafe and you go in, on a walk and as you're walking, you're talking Dharma. And then you sit down to meditate under a holy site here and then you sit down to meditate at a holy site there. And like the whole thing, it's, and then you sleep and dream Dharma. And then you wake up one day and you're in back in America, back in your own, your old neighborhood. And people don't care about you. They have, they don't care about where you've been. They have no, they've never heard the word pilgrimage. They have no idea what the Bodhisattva about. They couldn't give a hell about meditation. Uh, and so it's alienating and it's discouraging and it could be terrifying and disorienting. And so what I try to do now is extensive vetting on the preliminary side. I don't think this kind of thing is just for anybody. And maybe it is, but I don't want to be responsible for just anybody. And I don't want to have that person who's not really ready be adversely impacted and then adversely impact the rest of the group. So these are either people that I have spent some time with in my own courses, or it's a friend of a friend that I can interview or have a phone conversation with. Or if it's early enough, I might have a phone conversation with them, invite them into some of my courses in advance so they get to meet people, hear me teach, get get a head start on some of their practices and reading. But then on the back end, it's so important that you have monthly meetings or weekly meetings with like-minded people so that you can process and discuss and hear yourself refine your own views. 
and that there's some through line or continuity of the things that you have thought, said, and done uh, so that you can bring a little of Bodhgaya home into a microclimate, which is why I loved the imagery of the Bod Bodhi tree that was transplanted from India to Sri Lanka. And wherever there was a, wherever they put a sapling in the ground, they erected temples there. So you can almost imagine that the island of Sri Lanka is dotted with little micro bubbles of Dharmic practice. And I think that that's what keeps it alive for centuries, centuries. And I think that that's what's required when you come back from a psychedelic experience or a near-death experience or a pilgrimage is that you have to have a microclimate to, that's like a container for the further development where you can continue to water and add sunlight to the nascent budding hero inside of you or heroine inside of you. And it can't be an individual affair. It has to be communal because mirroring is so essential to our development. You have to see yourself growing in the mirror reflection of peers who understand and can validate you. I say from a clinical perspective, I think this is a completely untapped fountain. Uh, I, it's, I don't know of any, uh, they're, they probably exist. And, you know, I have a small, small network. Um, but this is something I've been advocating for since, um, well, since I wrote my dissertation that psychologists, mental health uh, therapists, why are we not tapping into this post pilgrimage, um, creating these communities? I mean, even if it if it's not there, there's so much reentry work I think that can be done, even if it's three to six sessions or ongoing uh, groups, even from one pilgrimage to another. I mean, pilgrims, it, it might not the the particular pilgrimage can be different from person to person, but much of the internal. Uh, transformation that has happened is similar across pilgrims. It seems like there's such an opportunity here um, to, and, and maybe even virtually, uh, I mean, we've become more comfortable with virtual um, therapeutic communities because of the pandemic, but it seems like that they're, it's, it's kind of untapped. I mean, even, even uh, therapists aren't even asking about these significant uh, journeys, like during an intake, it's something that I talk to all of my students about. It's important, you know, as, as future therapists to ask people about spiritual journeys that they've been on because it, 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 it when the, when the therapist can act as kind of a a facilitator or a guide in some way of integrating those past experiences into this internal transformation. I think it it it's more significant um, than some of the other practices that we do. Maybe not for you. I mean, you're right in the space of contemplative psychotherapy, so you probably already are are doing this clinically. Yeah, I'm already doing it, but I yeah. also think it's a hard ask to ask a, a mainstream conventional therapist because it, it can be outside the scope of their practice. I mean, where in their training are they getting this kind of perspective? I mean, to even ask the question about pilgrimage assumes that they've been, they've had part of their curriculum or training to, to even talk about spiritual things. And that that's not 
the mainstream training. I mean, if you do a PhD, you go to school for six years, I doubt very much that the word consciousness, spiritual, and it's funny, isn't it? We're psychologists, psyche, psyche is the soul. How many times have we talked about consciousness? We don't even have a definition of consciousness in psychology. Uh, yes, I am in a, I'm in a particular niche where this is my bread and butter. Like I don't really receive any clients that aren't interested in consciousness, yoga, meditation. I mean, I can only see so many clients individually. So my little, my little nest of, 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 of people that I, uh, have the pleasure and fortune to relate to are all on top of this and all have either done pilgrimages or know about psychedelics or know about meditation or know about yoga. Uh, but I think you're hitting it on the head. I mean, I think you're also probably, whether you're explicitly saying it now, you're also critiquing some of our culture, you know, and, and this is why I think that you're, I hate, I mean, I, you're a stranger to me, Heather, but what you're doing with pilgrimage is a very deep thing. And you may be offering something into psychology, into the, into the psyche of our training for future generations to really open the door to a much broader view of human development that includes transpersonal domains. And how are people going to serve the masses if the the very therapists themselves don't have those kinds of lexicon or training or experiences themselves. Um, so that, yeah, so that's a very important question. But yes, I mean, I do a lot of work. I, my, I have an ecosystem. I work with people individually so that they get the inner pilgrimage right. They have the inner resource of me relying on me as their mentor and Geshe Tenzin Zopa as their spiritual advisor. But then I also have courses, long courses. I don't just teach like the one-off course. I, my courses are like four years long, two years long, one year long. They need to be long because human, the human mind is incredibly complex and integration takes a lot of time. I mean, it's only the mandates of insurance that make it seem like you have four, you get four sessions and you gotta be gone. I mean, it's a good start, but it's, come on, it's not really enough when you're talking about a complete and utter transformation of the soul. So I have individual therapy and, and private meetings. I have these long courses and those long courses are multi-dimensional. So there's instruction and lecture, there's meditation, but there's also, I started instituting a service project where we uh, emergent from the group, we decide where we're going to allocate our time and energy and resources to make some sort of contribution to humanity. We do something new every year and that galvanizes, galvanizes everybody so that we can embody the Bodhisattva vow that we've taken on one of our pilgrimages. And then I also have courtyards. Now our courtyards are supposedly mimicked after the debate grounds in the Tibetan monasteries. They're a place for people to converge together and have dialogue about current events and hash out philosophies and also express themselves and have a place for people to support them, whether they're coming fresh out of pilgrimage or as, it, as the case has been in the last two years with COVID, like people need a place to process through the lens of spirituality, through the lens of Buddhism. Like how do we make sense of the practices that we're practicing and the experiences that we're having in the global situation that we're in 
like where do people get a chance to to process that so we have that's called the courtyard there are the classes there's the individual instruction and then there is the the annual pilgrimage so i i i have tried to create a whole ecosystem for people so that they can go from start to end and through it again i mean i've had people who have been on pilgrimage i've got a couple of people that have been on every pilgrimage that i've offered so you know and then there's a few people, of course, that can't do that, but one is really enough. But then how do they how do they maximize their one pilgrimage over and over and over again? Well, as long as you have an imagination, you can do that. And so one of the things that I teach is visualization, Tibetan tantric visualization. Well, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the third type of pilgrimage is an alchemical one. And it's really based on the neuroscience of memory and positive affirmation and positive vision. That you can, we, we go back to Bud Gaia and refresh our vows in our imagination. I call it the flight simulator principle. Because just like a fighter pilot can climb into a flight simulator without any risk of harm or damage to an airplane or themselves, and they still get the benefit of seeing and experience and conditioning their brains and minds as a result of what they're seeing, we do a visualization practice that takes us back to Bodh Gaya and puts us into contact with higher power or agencies or deities, whatever you want to call it, and bathes the mind and refreshes the mind and draws on the memory bank of what those powerful experiences have been like, including the resolve and the pledges and the vow one makes, including the vision and the vibration of recreating and, and acting as an avatar in the plan, in, within the planet. And, and so even if you just go on one pilgrimage, but you come back every week to do this visualization, you keep that pilgrimage very much alive in your brain. And I think it's important to, uh, because I could hear a bit of apprehension in what you, in saying, well, maybe one pilgrimage is enough. Actually, pilgrimage as a practice, I mean, how many people have you met, and maybe it's even for yourself, this is a part of who we, who we are, and isn't it, uh, amazing that we've discovered this. Isn't it amazing that we know that we can tap into going on a pilgrimage and that is part of how we care for ourselves? Totally. For me, I mean, I know the rest of my life, you know, I started bringing my kids who are seven and four on pilgrimage and I hope that every time I go, they get to go and I hope they relate to it in a way as they grow up that that's becomes a meaningful part of their development and I think repeat offenders for pilgrimage are really fortunate ones. I think, yes, definitely we can imagine that pilgrimage is something that we engage in. I mean, I think our ancestors did. I mean, they traveled not, they, I mean, they, they traveled by way of the stars. So there was a seasonal aspect to pilgrimage or there was a celestial aspect, to, which means it's cyclic, which means you don't just do it once. You do it over and over and over again. You align yourself with the greater forces of the cosmos and you travel to some celestial place of meaning and you do rituals there and you do them repeatedly. And I think, yes, I mean, of course, I only hesitate really for finances. I mean, think sometimes these things are really not accessible to everybody. And I can't forget that. Um, you know, so that's the only reason I hesitate. You know, I, I have seen some people, which I admire, you know, they really want to go on pilgrimages. The finances don't work out. And I say to them, listen, you know, don't go to therapy for six months and save every cent that you can. Because, <laughs> you know, honestly, don't come see me for a couple, like a couple of months and save up. Or, 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 or I mean, it is a comment on our culture in terms of, What's the value? 
Most people who haven't been on a pilgrimage can't really understand the value. They don't know how to save and delay gratification for what might be for some people a year or two worth of their savings so that they can do this. But in the in the Muslim culture, they do this. They start saving very on, early on. I mean, to go on Hajj is the same is the same principle that we might uh, in the West save for our college or our retirement. We start early and we accumulate over time so that a kid can go to college. They recognize that pilgrimage is like that. It's an investment. It's profound, it's life altering, and it's essential, and, and, and it's unequivocal. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't compromise on it. Uh, so, you know, maybe I, I suggest to people that they don't go to therapy for a few months or whatever. It's kind of a silly little comment, but it, it's, it shows that I'm prioritizing. I'm both sensitive to the fact that not everybody can do it. On the other hand, I encourage people to start thinking long term uh, because there really isn't anything like it. You know, the therapy can only go so far. The, the, uh, the meetings, the Zoom meetings can only go so far. You know, there is really nothing that replaces or can touch the experience of being on pilgrimage. I think that's probably, we're both in agreement about that. So for, for listeners, uh, what, what, if people were interested on, in, in going on a pilgrimage with you, what, would, what could they expect that would happen? Going on a pilgrimage with me would include, I mean, every year is a different destination. So, you know, our last two were canceled. We were supposed to go to Ladakh in the high Himalayas two years ago. And last year we were supposed to go to India to Budgaya and it got canceled, unfortunately and frustratingly, but understandably. So next, next October, 2022, we will go to, we will start in Nepal. Actually the pre-pilgrimage for next year we are going into the Himalayas uh, to a to the Sum Valley, which is considered a Baal in Tibetan. A Baal is a hidden land. It's a very sacred and secret place, very hard to get to. In fact, you can only get to it by helicopter. So we'll fly in. And this happens to be the home, the village home of my teacher, Geshe Tenzin Zopa. And there's a monastery up there called the Rachin Monastery, which our service project is oriented towards. So, Geshe Tenzin Zopa had a vision that he wanted to plant 500 fruit trees around this. Uh, and there's the tree again, the symbol of the tree at a time where ecology, we're destroying our ecology. He wants to plant 500 fruit trees up there. So before we set sail on the pilgrimage proper, we'll go up to the Sum Valley with Geshe Tenzin Zopa and meet the nuns of Rechen Nunnery and help um, break the ground on our 500 tree uh, planting orchard as a symbol, a symbol gesture, not only of our commitment to the lineage and a commitment to the nuns and the rise of the feminine, but also the, the bodhisattva ideal of service to other living beings. And then we'll start in Kathmandu Valley and we'll make, which is just flooded with sacred sites and Geshe Tenzin Zopa will take us all around the sacred sites. And then we'll head from, from Kathmandu after a week or so to Lumbini, which is on the border between Nepal and India, and that's where the Buddha was uh, born. And then we'll start the series of the four great holy sites of the Buddha. So we'll go from Lumbini to Kushinagar. Kushinagar is where he died. Then we'll go to, to Varanasi, the, one of the most the longest inhabited spiritual cities on the planet on the banks of the Ganges, Varanasi. We'll go there, and on the outskirts of Varanasi is Sarnath, where the Buddha gave his first teaching. And we'll go from there to Budgaya. And Budgaya, of course, is where he gained enlightenment. That's where we'll spend five days. 
with Geshe Tenzin Zopa doing our ceremonies, our refuge, our bodhisattva vows, um, and doing some group processing and getting ready for coming back. And then when we get back, people inevitably plug into my contemplative studies program. That's where I have the bulk of my ecosystem. And that's where we have these long range programs that you can plug into the service project and the courtyard. And, uh, and so if anybody would be interested in coming, they can always visit one of both of my sites. The ecosystem is the gradual path. I'm sure you'll put these in the links. That's the contemplative studies program. The link is gradual path. And then my own website has the same uh, process. You can find all the information there too, milesneal.com. Well, thank you, Miles. Um, have I have I missed anything that you want? Any other message you want to get out there? The only the only one message I, I tie to pilgrimage is an article I wrote, and it's um, emphasizing one thing that we didn't get time to. It's a bigger topic, and maybe one you want to pick up at another time. It's fine. Um, is the idea that um, our culture is sick? We have a great sickness in our culture, and it's not that. It, depression is not the cause. Depression is just a symptom. Uh, most people are trying to look for what the symptom is. They could trace it to childhood trauma. I'm not denying that. I think a lot of root trauma is at the heart of our uh, the constellation of symptoms. The massive depression that we're seeing, the increases in suicide, the uptick in anxiety, the sense of alienation, and also among younger kids, the sense of apathy. Now, the first line of defense is to medicate people, and I'm not of the mind that we should be medicating probably three-fourths of these people. Only probably a quarter of them really, really need that biochemical intervention. What we really need is to look at the substrate. And I think what is at the substrate is that our culture is very, very misaligned. The paradigm in which we live is focused only on material reality. And we are basically a nihilistic culture as a result of 400 years of history since the age of reason and the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution. We basically are orphaned in the cosmos. When we live in a, with a disenchanted worldview, we don't see ourselves as spiritually inclined anymore. We see ourselves as chemistry in a, in a brain. We see the planet as a you know, a box of resources we can squander. And we see the cosmos as basically stardust and rocks. It's a dead world. It's a dead worldview. And Nietzsche knew it when he said that God is dead and we have killed him. And we have. And if we don't take care of that underlying vision of the world, which is so, so uh, deadening, I think we're not, you know, the medication is not going to help us. Uh, we're not looking far into the problem enough. We have to reanimate the soul. We have to help bring people back into a spiritual, and I'm not saying Buddhist, it doesn't have to be Buddhist, but something that revitalizes their spirit, helps them see that they're more than just matter, reconnect them with community and sense of agency and sense of stewardship of the planet, and helps them tie them to greater monomyths and metaphors uh, in the cosmos and see that their life has meaning inherently and that there's a purpose to their life. If we can't get to young people with that kind of uh, mission statement, uh, then we're surely lost. We're surely lost. And I think this is why I think pilgrimage, pilgrimage in two weeks can do all of that. 
it can do all of that. Because if you look at pilgrimage, it doesn't matter what religion, they all have a cosmology. They all have a statement about the human mind and about the human predicament. They all empower people with practices, embodied practices, whether it be prayer or contemplation or meditation or ritual. And I think this is like, pilgrimage is much older. And it, it, is, it is people like you, Heather, that are going to put out into the popular consciousness an archetype that serves as a doorway. And through that doorway, they may go through pilgrimage, but pilgrimage is not the end result. Pilgrimage reconnects them to the soul. That's the thing that I want to say at the end of this podcast. It's about reconnecting with the revitalizing aspect of the soul, which is much more ancient. It is infinite. And it has a purpose. And that's the message that I think COVID is, is underneath the fragmentation of COVID is the possibility of connecting with that message. I agree. I, 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 uh, in 2018 published a book about pilgrimage being the, the process, the link between the, the, the transformative process from fractured to integrated. I think it's the integration piece that you're talking about. And we could probably go on and on and on about all the, the fractured pieces, but I do think that pilgrimage provides the, that platform for an integration in a way that we desperately need. Yeah, wonderful. And I'd love for you to share with me some of your work because I, I, I'm really happy to have met you and very, very much looking forward to continuing a nice collaboration as we go through on because I think it's no coincidence, no coincidence to have seemingly bumped into you. You just heard Pilgrimage and Spiritual Awakening, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced by Jonah Bayer. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.